Hello and welcome to another episode of the Midiara Meets podcast where we speak to all sorts of people who work in sound and music. On the show this time we've got Dave Clark who is one of the pioneering uh, techno producers and DJs of the last 30 years. Uh, he was given the moniker the Baron of Techno by John Peel who is um, one of the all-time most heralded DJs in British history. Um, he's released seminal albums, he's released seminal tracks, remixes, all kinds of stuff and his live shows and energy have to be seen to be believed. Uh, you can support the podcast in a few different ways if you like. Uh, you can donate. Uh, you can also just share it and like the podcast. That also really helps. Uh, a lot of other podcasts maybe have more than one person working on them. This one doesn't. It's just me from my bedroom. So any support is really, really appreciated. Um, uh, but that's enough of that. Let's get on with the show. And the first thing that I asked Dave was about his musical beginnings. Yeah, that's an interesting one because it's um, it starts in different ways. But music started for me um, through my father and my mother. Um, weirdly enough, my father was into technical stuff, um, so had record decks, reel-to-reel, spring reverb, um, disco lights. Um, it used to cut uh, reel-to-reel and edit it. Still remember the smell of the chalk on the cutting room uh, um, block and, and the felt underneath. And my mother used to collect disco records. So, you know, I was sort of into it from them. And then my own taste developed um, around punk music and Scar and things like Ecstasy, Making Plans for Nigel, um, things like that. And so then I sort of got into it in that way. And then um, I had various epiphanies um, whilst I was growing up, and one of them was through Gustav Holst at school uh, when they did like um, the. It's always a, a worrying story how it starts off, but it ends up okay when a religious teacher takes a group of young boys into a darkened room, <laughs> and then uh, and then and then um, plays a vinyl version of Gustav Holst at the same time as playing uh in those days it was film video film uh of of the planets sort of at the same time and that for me was like an epiphany because it sort of linked everything together and gustav holst sort of encapsulated what pythagoras had said before and um this was like my i would say my first techno experience really here in gustav holst the planet suite uh, and then of course my father already was a fan of a Japanese guy called Tamita. And he had like the Planet Suite by Tamita as well. Uh, and then when he heard those, and at that time there's also actually, just remembering, just uh, thinking about, there was also Star Wars was out, but there was also the disco version by Miko, I think it was. And there was like all these electronic weird sounds as well. And so it was all sort of coming together in that way. And then I would say at school it started to formulate really deeply with electro and hip hop. Fantastic, man! Um, what was it? What did your dad? What was your dad doing with all of the um, the equipment that he had? Sadly, playing James Last. So that's where the music part separated. Um, but no, I mean I would watch him because in those days, of course, electric um, 
power uh, wasn't actually even in the walls. It was actually, you know, with like a metal uh, or plastic tubing on the outside with a box that used to fit on the outside of the wall. And, you know, I remember him with a big, I think it was the 10 pound hammer, which I had hit on my hand before. And it, it hurts. It's the first time I heard my, my father swear. And I, I do remember him saying, ruddy hell. So, you know, <laughs> he even kept his composure even in those days, um, which is amazing considering the outside uh, sources uh, taken away his composure. Um, but I remember him like hitting hammer, putting the cable in the wall, putting the plug sockets in the wall so they're flush, and then having car speakers and then running car uh, stereo a speaker cable all the way from the amplifier in the in the uh, the tiny living room downstairs all the way up to the bathroom upstairs so you could actually listen to the radio in the bath. Nice. Uh, not only could you listen to the radio in the bath, but he actually worked it so it sounded better through the spring reverb with a minimum of like half a second or something. So it had that warmth. Um, I mean, my father actually did, uh, I never heard it, sadly. I'd like to have heard, hear it, but my father did a, a little thing on BBC Radio Sussex about quadraphonics. Oh, wow. Um, talking about it because he was really into quadraphonics as well. So, yeah, it sort of all came from there. So my father was like much more into the technical side of things, the engineering side of things. And I think that comes from a variety of reasons. Firstly, he wanted, when he left school, I believe that he wanted to be a, uh, either an artist, like a painter or an architect, but ended up being an accountant uh, to support the family. So I think these things came out of frustration as well and interest, of course. So we'd be putting together these really convoluted hi-fi chains, um, which I would really enjoy like looking and he would trust me enough to have like a big set of JVC headphones on my head, listening to an album really close next to the amplifier like you used to in those days and actually looking at, at, at the record as it went round because there wasn't much else. You couldn't look at your phone or anything. It was like either that or sit on the sofa and read the album cover. So I remember that. And then, of course, he had like video recorders uh, and then he actually managed to get the audio out of the video recorder to the speakers and he had a set of Tannoy's. Uh, Tannoy speakers. That's that's my love of Tannoy's. How that started was because of my father, and then my mother would, uh, because she was at home all day, uh, would basically play music really, really loud and basically piss off everyone next door um, and cause massive arguments with the neighbours all the time. Um, but I, that's that's how I got into hi-fi itself, actually. Nice man. And actually, when I when I was uh, eight or nine years old or maybe 10 actually, when I've got my first record player, I, I had a train that was given to me by my grandfather, like a big tin train. And at the end of it, there was like a green, uh, a green light that came out about that much. And that green light was the only thing that was really battery operated within that train. So I had cables coming out and I worked out if I took out that, that light and then put that light through the keyhole of my bedroom, with blue tack and then on the other side had the battery attached to the um uh the door with blue tack every time i lit that light no one could knock on the door because i was using my mono tape recorder with a really cheap microphone recording uh the records and then pretending i was a dj nice like a red means recording sort of it was green is the only color i had <laughs> um but yeah it's like don't come in when the light is green which of course is goes against the grain but yeah that's, and then that's I, great, I used to borrow uh, my father's like battery powered uh, ever ready powered um, AA shop hazard car light 
that you would have at the back, which would have like a little plastic triangle thing. So you can then switch it on the yellow light will flash to warn other motorists. That would be like disco light number one. And I would go into the, um, uh, into the kitchen when my mother wasn't looking and steal all the tinfoil and not put it as a, as a hat, obviously, because I'm not that sort of conspiracy theorist. Uh, but I would actually put it all over the walls everywhere. And then that was the beginning of Dave's Disco. Yeah, I did read that on on a John Peel website um, that says about you having the foil on the inside of the, the walls. <laughs> That's cool, man. And yeah, Tomito is really, um, yeah, really amazing composer, wasn't he? Um, it, it, well, I wouldn't say composer, uh, but electronic, uh, because all the music that I know from Tomito is like Debussy, uh, Gustav Holst. So obviously he was... But to do it the way that he did, it's interesting though, because obviously when you listen back in time through more scientific ears, you hear how thin everything sounded, say, compared to Vangelis. And that was really interesting as well. But I mean, Tomita was like massively important. And then going forward, like 40 odd years, is like Tomita sort of helped me have the guts to do Gustav Holst in a different way at Charles de Gaulle Airport live with Mathilde as well because it was so part of me and then I can bring that forward. And then again, where you can dissect classical music, you can change it. You can do your own thing to it. And that's sort of gave me the guts four years earlier. Amazing, man. Um, yeah. I, I, his, his album, um, Snowflakes Are Dancing is one that I'm, I'm familiar yeah. with and have, have bought a yeah. couple of copies of. And yeah, um, I wasn't aware that you did that with, uh, Gustav Holst. Um, but it is a ridiculously yeah. powerful, uh, piece uh, pieces four pieces of music isn't it the planets yeah there was a story i read that um uh, you were given a um a mixer by your chemistry teacher yeah how did that come about uh, i basically i was unteachable at school <laughs> like completely unteachable really desperate well i mean a couple of things happened in my life firstly uh for for, for quite some time I didn't actually have a bedroom. Um, I was sleeping in the, what was called the dining room, but actually was the storage space for everything that wasn't wanted in the house. And I was actually sleeping there on a fold out sofa because the house, all the bedrooms that were there, which is basically like one and a half, I had like um, a bedroom, but that was taken away from me. And then another half bedroom, which was my old little cupboard bedroom when I was like a little child. And they were taken away from me uh, for a few years during uh, the summer and spring months. So like about four months a year, five months a year, uh, I, I didn't have a bedroom for maybe two years. And um, I didn't have anywhere to do my homework. And I didn't have anyone interested in me doing homework or anyone even remotely interested in me at school, actually, except when I got the bad report. And then it's like, you're not doing well at school, son, you need to do more. And then no interest. So I, I don't know. I mean, I had all the best intentions, like all kids. It's like at the beginning of term when you get your new stationary kit and you get your danger mouse rubber, which smells incredible. I still remember the smell of that danger mouse rubber now. It's like, oh, sure, I'm sure I can eat it. It smells <laughs> really good. Um, and, you know, you got your new Stablo Boss um, marker pen and you got your new sharp HB pencil and you think, this is the, uh, I'm going to do shit. This is going to be, and you know, three days later, you know, smoking cigarettes, uh, emptying salt and vinegar into your into your into your school blazer so it doesn't make a racket, and then you can eat them softly at the back of the class. Uh, it already gone out the window. I just like wasn't interested at all. Gone, whatever. You know, in those days we'd all wear fingerless gloves. You remember the fingerless gloves, like mm -hmm. probably Robert Smith would wear. 
And we'd all think we'd go into school thinking, no, we don't smell like we're smoking cigarettes. Now, of course, you can smell anyone a mile away. Yeah, and these 20, 20 metres away. <laughs> these fingerless gloves basically smell like orange tart, you know, it, because you've just been smoking at the back of the number five and number 49 bus for like half an hour to get to school. <laughs> and it's like, you stink like a fucking, you know. So basically the whole of my education had completely gone skew if it had gone out the window and I, you know, I'd like get the cane and constantly be in trouble. And so I just was unteachable. I just wasn't interested. And when I was interested, I, I didn't have the environment to really do it any justice. Right. Um, so I couldn't really, you know, my, my family had broken up and everything was chaotic. So I didn't really have the environment. So I think the chemistry teacher took a little bit of pity on me. I don't know, but not in a horrible way. And actually over a summer holiday, lent me a very basic, uh, Tandy realistic battery powered mixer. And then I started to work out how to use that without very speed, uh, without any of that stuff. And then it was like really interesting. And then the different impedance, like it had a microphone channel. And what would it be like if I plugged in the phono into the microphone channel? I was like, oh, wow, distortion. This is really interesting. So I learned a little bit. And then I had to get cables in those days, which were exp- anything was expensive if you had to spend any money on it, if you didn't have it. So, I, you know, I managed to get some cake. And it was interesting. So that whole summer I had a mix and, and learned a, a little bit about it. When would you say you started putting things together, like, of your own, like, the, maybe the, the early part of making music? Okay, so... Like most kids in those days, I had a BBCB uh, computer. Oh, wow. Uh, which was like a very posh version of the Sinclair, I suppose. So I had the BBCB and was trying a little bit of stuff uh, on a program called Umi, I think it was, uh, back in the day. I think uh, Vince Clark used to use it. Wow. Um, and trying my best to work that. But the first things, because I used to work in a shoe shop at that time and wasn't getting very much money. I was in a bed sit at the time. And I would go to this little shop. For some reason, it was at the back of a sweet shop. I don't know why, around the corner from where I lived, where they would sell Yamaha equipment. <laughs> so not, I'm serious. It was the back of a sweet shop. It was an Indian uh, sweet shop that obviously uh, had too much space at the back, and they subletted it out to someone. So you had to go through, uh, you know, the jars of sherbet lemons and all that other stuff. And then at the back in a small room was a guy that was selling Yamaha equipment. Right, so the, he'd have a DX7, he'd have all the Yamaha amplifiers, the Yamaha PA speakers, and the Yamaha drum machines. And I thought, I need to get into drum machines. This is where I need to start. So I started buying drum machines, and I would go in there every single week with my wages of, uh, and then put five or 10 pounds deposit on a drum machine. And the first one that I bought was an RX21. Oh, I know it, yeah. Um, Nice. Uh, which actually I think, you know, like the, the bass drum and the hi-hat is very, very 1985 house music. And I bought that and I would go in there with five or 10 pounds. And I think it took me like nine weeks to basically pay for it. And the thing that was cool was, and I, did, I wasn't doing it on purpose, but it was 120 quid. But I think he was so pissed off with me coming in every single week with like a fiver or a tenner and then sitting down talking shit about everything in there for like ages and ages and ages. He's probably like, oh God that he'd let me have it for like 70 quid or something. Nice. Which was a great thing, but a big mistake for him because with the money that I'd saved, there was the RX-21L, <laughs> the Latin version. So I said, 
oh, thank you. And then two weeks or three weeks later, I said, I'd like to put some money on the deposit on the RX 21L as well now. And, it's like, <laughs> and then, so I managed to get those two drum machines for like half the price, right? And then I discovered like, cause I was into hip hop now, I discovered like, I think Breaking Bells by Tila Rock Mantronics, uh, that he actually, it's the first time I discovered quite blatantly that a preset had been used. And that was pattern, I think number 55 or 56 on the 21L. And I was like, oh, okay, so people just use shit when it comes out of the machines. This is really, really interesting. And I had a Yamaha MT. My father got me a Yamaha MT2X uh, four-track machine. And I, this is when I was starting to put things together. And I might have a drum beat, and then I'd be mixing on top, trying my best to mix on top with something that wasn't the Technics, but using the very speed on the MT2X uh, to actually get it to mix properly and then recording in acapellas. And this is when I started first putting things together. Um, there's another shop which is still around in Edward Street, which is called MBI, uh, which is like a disco shop. And actually they used to be linked to Alan and Heath back in the day when Alan and Heath were just like, uh, not DJ mixers, but mixers, uh, PA mixers. And I used to go there with my father as well and learn about stuff. Um, but there, the, the RX21 and 21L were the first things that I bought um, to, to try and make music. And then I was working behind a bar, I think, at the age of 15 or 16 in Sayers Common. So I was working at the shoe shop, but then at the weekend, the manageress said, we need, she was like almost like a pimp for staff, right? We need, like, this bar needs loads of people to work. Do you want to come? So we'd all pile in the taxi, uh, Southern Taxis 2020, and it's like this old Vauxhall Chevalier thing. And we'd all pile in the taxi and we'd all go to work there. And this was like 1985, I think, something like that. Beginnings of house music, Jesse's Gang, stuff like that. And I would try and get that even earlier so I could actually use the decks in the club sound system. And they would let me use the decks, actually. I would just set up the bar super fast. Look, the bar's set up. Can I Can I have a go? And I'd just be like bringing my records up. And the DJ that I was there, I really do wish I could remember his name. He had like a Juno keyboard. Wow. He let me borrow that Juno keyboard for like a month because he was using it like live on stage for helicopter sounds and all that weird FM or not FM, but all those weird sounds that were happening. Yeah. And he actually let me borrow it and I actually borrowed it a little bit. And that, wow. that was interesting as well. So actually, if I look back, because I, I, I don't know if you're Brighton boy all the way through. No, um, I'm, I'm from Shropshire, country boy okay. from Shropshire. <laughs> So there was a club in Brighton called um, Coasters, uh, which actually had sort of teenage nights, but it was mainly a gay club night. And I'd befriended some of the people that were there, including the DJ, who, who really was that village people type of guy with the big handlebar moustache. And he'd be listening to, to his mixes on the old DJ telephone, the, the old headphone that was the shape of a telephone, you know, like a big red telephone, you know, like it was basically like you thought this is probably what New York looked like. You know, but it was in Brighton, so it was really interesting. <laughs> and then the the people that worked in the lighting booth, they were really nice to me. They were really, uh, they didn't want anything from me. They were just really caring and really sweet people. And I could sit in in the lighting booth, which was like sealed and I had tape machines, and they recorded some of the mixes for me to take home. Uh, and I saw my first PA there from Divine, and I heard loads of early Trevor Horn stuff like Mainframe. And it was, that was quite formative for me as well. Sorry, I ramble a lot because I remember Brighton. I remember all these different things that go on. But uh, yeah, so the first things were that. And then um, there was a guy that worked at a shop called Hit. Uh, not not Hit. Um, 
there was something else, uh, but it's basically the end of Jubilee Street, you know, the song that Nick Cave wrote about Jubilee Street. Um, so it's basically the, the end of Jubilee Street. And he saw something within me uh, and basically tried to help me, but it didn't work out. Uh, and we went to a studio in Guildford. And the first, actually the first, so I was quite lucky. I was supposed to leave school and do computer software engineering at Baswick. And I was promised that I could have some money for that from my mother uh, side of the family, my mother, to help me get through at least to go to school there. Um, but then that money just disappeared. I don't know what happened to it. It just went. So I couldn't go there at all. And so my father paid for me to go to a course at Sussex University for 10 days in the summer holiday. And the guy that was there, I believe his name was Nick Parks, I think, or no, Nick, someone or other. And um, he was the producer behind Maury County. Um, and I learned so much in, that, in those 10 days that I knew after those 10 days, this is where I have to be. Because the amount of excitement I got from working with machines and working with sounds and, and playing with sounds in a very rudimentary form, with someone that could help me understand it a little bit better because there was no internet, a few magazines around. So you really had to get knowledge from other people uh, if you didn't have the equipment. And that really helped propel me to say, this is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. Excellent. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, please feel free to ramble. Um, it's really fascinating to hear like the, the backstory behind what you do and, and, and where that stuff all came from. Um, I, yeah, the, the, it's interesting with the RX drum machines that you mentioned, because they, they, they um, you could sort of record into them live, sort of overdub uh, like MIDI notes onto them. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, I think there is a step, they will step sequence, but you can just like have them running and then you can play into them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I had a grip, but yeah, you could actually just like, just, and it will quantize it. Yeah, for you. yeah, it's yeah. Very, very hardcore quantizing, but yeah, it can quantize it. It was, yeah. I think I circuit bent one of those machines a few years ago. And um, I actually found an RX21 for sale here like about six years ago, and I bought it just to remind me of where I started from. It was like 20 euros. And I just polished it up. It doesn't work, but I just bought it to remind me of where I started from. Yeah, man, that's amazing. It's is yeah. It's great to hear that there were you know there were people that saw something in you even in those early days and sort of um, yeah helped you on your way to. Well, it's weird because like a, a school friend of mine, actually, I caught up with them about four or five years ago, and I've seen them on and off throughout my life. But I caught up with them about four or five years ago. Went for fish and chips at that um, Quadrophenia fish and chip shop. And he said to me, but I always knew you were so single-minded. I, I always knew that even when you're at school that this is what you were going to do. It's interesting when you hear that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely sort of, there was something, there was some sort of fire inside you taking you somewhere. It's mm. also interesting you mentioned about presets. I do remember speaking to Mylar Melodies um, a, f a, f a few episodes ago now about presets and about there's an LFO track, which is like the opening part of their track is just purely a preset off a synth. And he, he was talking about his like shock and sh shock slash horror that hit this seminal artist had literally just like used a preset. But the way you can look at it is no one else had used it before. And they saw something that no one else did. And probably everyone else that's used that preset is like kicking themselves because they didn't see it at the time as well. You know, if everyone used the same preset or three people, then it's a bit sad. But if one person uses it 
and then makes a mega hit out of it, then it's like, you're really only jealous because you didn't see it yourself. (laughs) Exactly. And there was, for some reason, there's there's a Roland dance module that's coming to mind. I don't know if you ever saw that piece of kit. And it was basically like loads of sampled loops inside a a rack-mounted unit. And it was like pure Wild West days of like, They've literally just sampled loads of classic drum loops and put them into a hardware unit, and it's put Roland dance module on it. Um, Would that have been like the JV twenty eighty or fifty eighty? I think it's called the dance module. It's one of those really odd sort. I normally stayed away from shit like that. Black boxes. Like the moment anyone says dance module, like no, leave it alone. (laughs) Don't want that. It's like the moment you get a promo through in your emails and it says big in ibiza right now with pete tong you just know you don't want to go anywhere near it um so it's that sort of thing like if i saw dance module it's like well nah, 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 nah. Mm. because my experience of everything that comes from dance music is the most successful tracks find shit that wasn't anything to do with dance music in the first place right and did something with it which it wasn't supposed to do and that's why it worked yeah yeah definitely Definitely. It is, it is a weird one. That is one of those odd, oddball pieces of equipment. I spoke my, on a couple of episodes ago, I spoke to CJ Bolland, who, who, was, who worked at the R&S studios uh, for a long time. And he, he, he first of all said to say hi to you because, uh, uh, yeah, he, he said that you used to go to the R&S studios now and again. Yeah, he picked me up. I remember, remember CJ really, really well. Because at one point he did pick me up and drive me in his Vauxhall, uh, or they call it a different Opel over there, I think, or something. Um, Vauxhall uh, Calibra or something like that. And he, he said to me, like, in almost, in almost, like, he hates me for this because I remember it all the time and I always tell the story. <laughs> in almost um, Jeremy Clarkson voice, he picked me up and was like, This is the most aerodynamic car in the world. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, but it's a fucking Vauxhall, man. <laughs> um, yeah, he was really sweet. Yeah, I, I went over to RNS um, in 1990 on the back of um, of my track on XL recordings, which they licensed. And um, I worked with a guy in the studio called Marcus Salon, uh, who I occasionally still see when I go to Ghent. He was like behind out, out, Outlander with Vamp and other things like that as well. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, and he helped me through uh, the RNS studios. Um, yeah. Amazing, yeah. Um, really sort of sem- was that as hardcore? Was that your release on XL? Was that hardcore? So I released hardcore on XL, and then RNS licensed both uh, the first hardcore twelve and the second one. And then with the second one, Renard actually invited me over to RNS in 1990. I seem to remember it was. I think the second time I went was when John Major had lost and uh or maybe i think yeah i think john major had lost and all of a sudden it was starting to break away from conservative england it started to have a little bit of a future and things seemed to be a little bit brighter and uh yeah so i think it was about 1990 that i went there and then i came up with the idea of doing directional force and actually i did like a whole speech on midi technology um at the beginning and that was i was inspired by things like hercules seven ways to jack and the voice changing. And it's the first time, it's the first time in reality I saw many pieces of equipment, but the first time in reality I could speak through something and have a pitch shifter because I hadn't even tired. I was like, MIDI technology, a way to create. And I was like, oh my God, this sounds brilliant. I'm using this. <laughs> and then it's the first time I saw a Roland 808 drum machine. First time I saw many things, including 
sandwiches, which actually involve not mother's pride bread, um, but lots of different kinds of meat and lots of different kinds of bread. Uh, so I, it was like a big, a big European opening experience for me. Amazing. Yeah, he did run down. He did run down the studio. Um, what it was like at RNS, and it just seemed like this um, incredible place of just in his front room, and the mixing desk was like facing the kitchen. Was it? <laughs> Uh, that's brilliant, man. Yeah, you did have a few like early monikers. There's Directional Force, um, Pig yeah. City, Fly By Wire, Hardcore. When did you have your Magnetic North label? Was when when was that roughly? I think about 1992. About 92, Magnetic North was uh, started it. Yeah. And yeah, what was the what was the ethos? What was the idea behind setting up your own label? Couple of things. Uh, firstly, I got some advances, I think, from RNS, so I bought myself a JD800 keyboard, and then I just felt really creative with it. But I still wasn't sure who I was as an artist, so I came up with lots of different monikers like Graphite, Fly By Wire, um, which Fly By Wire I named after my dog's pedigree, Carl August van Hasselen, and weirdly enough, I did Gabba music without even knowing what really that I was doing it. Um, and also I wanted to, to release other people as well. But whilst it was technically sort of my label when it came to ideas about releasing music and who to release, because I had no money and because I had no uh, sort of business uh, background in that way, I, it wasn't my label from a business perspective. So I had the freedom to sort of sign, say I think this should be signed, that should be signed, this should be signed. Um, but when it came to, to running the label, I wasn't running on a day-to-day level. It was just more, I, I suppose I was sort of like more A&R, mm-hmm. actually, even though the idea uh, was, wasn't was uh, from, from them. So I see. I guess nowadays they would probably say you cu- curated the label, maybe? Yes, I curated, <laughs> indeed. I was a curator. Yeah. Yeah, um, and so you released your first album was released in 1995. Yeah. Who, yeah, what label was that on? Deconstruction. Yeah, Archive One. Um, absolutely seminal album in the techno scene. Um, yeah, what can, you, what can you tell us about making that album? So what happened is I, I released uh, some 12s with Bush Records. And because at that time I was quite nervous of just releasing 112 here, 112 there, 112 everywhere else. And I think it was the first time I actually went under using my own name as opposed to uh, like Graphite or Fly By Wire. Oh, sorry, itchy nose. Uh, am I going to sneeze? No, maybe. We'll find out. Um, so uh, it was the first time that I felt comfortable with a sound that I felt I could attribute to my own name. And I didn't want to just release one 12 inch and then be on another label and then be on another label. So I said, okay, we're going to release a series Red One of Three. Um, so that at least I definitely have three records. And then Red One came out and then everyone really got on top of that because it was after the Felix, uh, the House Get Afro Head remix that I did. And everyone got on top of that. By the time Red Two came out, there was like real chaos. I mean, people really, really were like, wow, this is really, really cool. And then at that time, Deconstruction personally approached me and said they want me to uh, have an album on their label. And I said... And actually, James Barton uh, was the one approached me, and I've always had massive amounts of respect for James because he's always been completely true, honest, 
and forthright. Um, so I was sitting in a car with him outside Burger King um, in Liverpool after playing at Cream, I think it was, on a Sunday talking. And I said, yeah, but I have to bring Bush along with me, which, of course, was a big mistake, like a massive fucking mistake, but it's okay. Um, and then Why was it a mistake? He was like... Uh, you can read about it in my book or you can actually look about it in other interviews, but it's, okay. it's, it's quite well documented now. Um, but it was like a, a humongous mistake. I mean, it was stupid. And, I, and to all fairness, I was warned against this by many other people, but because I seem to have like a stupid loyalty thing within me where I like to be loyal, I, I basically fucked myself with this loyalty in this particular situation. Um, so I have to take the responsibility myself. Many people were telling me you shouldn't do this. I mean, seriously, it was like, it's almost common knowledge, and again, it's before the internet. But I did, and went to uh, to deconstruction uh, with Bush. Yeah, then released the album. Had a blast working with James Barton. Um, felt really, really at peace working with him. He really, really understood what I was trying to do. They never tried to change my sound. They gave me free creative freedom, and yeah, I mean, it was actually a really enjoyable time working with James and and deconstruction. There was a journalist at the time uh, called Ben Wilmot who basically slagged me off for signing to Deconstruction saying that I was now commercial. Um, but I had, actually hadn't changed my sound at all. Um, and at that time, Decon wanted me, I think they were trying to sign Kylie Minogue at the time, I think they wanted me to uh, produce Kylie. And if you look at it in, in many ways, I mean, a lot of artists that come from the underground do go on to produce mainstream pop acts. Yeah, um, and sometimes there's actually nothing wrong with pop, you know. We all like pop music from time to time. There's nothing wrong with it. But it wasn't something that I particularly felt comfortable or wanted to do. And actually, that would repeat itself when I went to Skint as well, uh, where they would ask me to work with, with Carly as well. Um, and it was something I just didn't feel comfortable with, with doing, so I didn't do it. And therefore, I really resented what Ben Wilmot had said in, I think, Melody Maker or Enemy, that I was commercial and selling out because I went to deconstruction. Because deconstruction did not say to me, you must do this with your music, you must do that. They just let me free. They let me do everything that I wanted to do. When it came to the remixes, um, uh, I gave Surgeon his very, very first remix. And Surgeon delivered exactly what I hoped he delivered, which was something as hard as fucking nails. And no one at deconstruction went, oh, that's a bit tart. Not sure about that. They just went with it. They just said, yeah, sure, no problem. So I had carte blanche with James with, with regards to artistic trust. And I could get people on board that I wanted to get on board, you know. And so I, I really resented what Ben Wilmot had done. It was like, it was very typical, almost like the cancer of, of dance music press at that time. is push people down all the time. Yeah, I mean... Does that sort of thing drive you drive you on when you get that sort of criticism or when you got that sort of criticism? I think criticism is sometimes necessary. No one is above criticism. And if it's well-meant criticism, you can learn from that and you can change. If it's criticism through jealousy or just through snidiness, then no, that's not good for anyone. But if it's true, well-meant criticism by saying, hey, you should check yourself, then that's good. So criticism is, in itself isn't a bad thing. But at that particular time in the dance music press, it was like very uh, trendy to sort of claim that you're really, really 
underground without actually checking out what the music was contained. So they would say, well, you're not underground because you're releasing on a major record label. And then the same week, they'd write up on Leftfield, say, this is a great album, which it was, but this is a great album. And so they, they wouldn't even be consistent with their view. Mm-hmm. And because I used to be a journalist, and I'm actually going back to that now, I'm starting to write for Sound on Sound. Oh, cool. But because, I used to, because I used to be a journalist, it was like a double-edged sword. It was like, I used to write for ID Magazine. I used to write for Mixmag. Uh, I used to write for Generator Magazine. And then, you know, and then I'll be far more in advance of writing stuff than, say, someone like Ben Wilmot. And then you got Ben Wilmot, like, obviously having a complete go at you. And it's funny, I haven't said Ben Wilmot so many times in probably 25 years, but I'm just at that point in my, when I'm explaining things to you, and it's like, I was like, what a cunt, seriously. I mean, like, what a complete, utter twat. You don't even review stuff on time, and then you only review stuff after other people have reviewed it, and now you're having a go at me. It's like, so that stuff really annoyed, because I was actually not only the artist, but I also had the uh, undercurrent, I knew what was going on, the undercurrent was some of the journalists as well, so yeah. I can completely understand that, man. I can understand your point of view there. Um, yeah, especially coming from journalism yourself, you know, you can see that yeah. perspective. Um, perhaps the guy just didn't really have a good perspective, or, or like maybe, yeah. Well, if actually, if you look at archive, if you look at archive one, if, if you still have it, the one that opens out, he's the only person that's listed and then has his name with a black line through it. Really? <laughs> wow. Am I right in thinking that Rankin, the photographer Rankin, did the artwork yeah. for that? No, he didn't do the artwork. Um, so what happened was I came up with the idea of um, uh, the, the seal and what I wanted in there. And I think from memory, the person that did the artwork was maybe someone called Mark Furman, who actually then turned it into reality. And then Rankin was a photographer who did the photos. And I remember ranking deeply because for about two days afterwards, I had a corona around my eye of because he used ring flash. Every single time that I saw like a bright light for like two days, it was like looking through a 20-year-old 50mm eight-blade Leica lens. Uh, there was a constant corona around bright light. And I was like, fucking, will this ever go away? Yeah, it's like burnt into your retina. <laughs> yeah, but he, he did great photos. And I was con- actually, when I was... In his um, studio, I was kept asking him loads and loads of questions about what he was doing and why he was doing it because I was still fascinated by cameras from my father and he was using a Hasselblad and he had like a Polaroid back on there and it was like he was showing me the picture. It was actually a fun guy to work with. Yeah, and he's massive. It was one of the that was one is, of yeah. the names that that jumped out to me looking through your discogs was wow. I know that guy from God everywhere. But that's, the, that's also the beauty about deconstruction is like James Ricard. I didn't know who Rankin was at that time because my music in my head was firmly in music. And James said, I've got this great photographer for you. So, you know, he really understood every angle. So, you know, I was really sad when James left deconstruction, like really sad. Hmm. Well, I can see why you admired him, to be honest. You talked about him being honest and forthright. Yeah. And I think that those are two qualities that you have. You know, you're you're very um, you're very. I think you're very honest and you're very principled. Or it, you, yeah, you appear to be to me from my interpretation. And so um, I can see why you really appreciate people who are honest and forthright. Because um, yeah. perhaps in the music industry there is a bit of sheen and a bit of gloss. And um, like you said about undercurrents, you know, there is that there is a sort of fakeness to some 
maybe not just in the music industry in the in the world in general so um yeah i can see why you 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 sort of connected with that guy yeah um yeah you talked about remixes um some of the remixes that you've done there um you mentioned the um felix the house cat one the early one um but yeah i mean i could rattle off a list of 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 huge uh remixes that you've done or, or artists that you've remixed for including john fox the chemical brothers depeche mode um you also remixed you remixed fat planet by left field as well yeah. Um I have to I have to really I admire you so much for even attempting to remix that but not only not only like did you attempt it you made such a killer track. Um like your Fat Planet remix is one of my absolute favorites. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was what, still watching TV in those days. Um and I remember seeing I think it was the Guinness advert. Um when the horses were coming in, I was like, holy shit. Only two adverts have had this effect on me, actually. One of them was about six or seven years later for the Audi. I can't remember who that was who did that music. Um, so only two adverts have had that effect of like music uh, that I didn't know and, uh, and imagery and actually working them together really well. And so when I saw the Fat Planet uh, music in an advert, when I didn't know what it was, and you didn't have Shazam in those days either, um, it's like, whoa that is seriously powerful the way those two come together is insane it's almost as powerful as like uh killian murphy uh at the beginning of an orbital track talking about time you know it just works together so well and so powerfully that it's just a great marriage so i saw that and i thought Wow, that's brilliant! But I could fucking do that so much better. Um, that's astonishing. Because <laughs> I thought, even though I was on TV and then I heard it, I was like, "That's great," but it's missing a solid anchor. It's missing the base. I can do this. I want to do this, and they let me do it. So I actually asked them. I think because sometimes some uh, some remixes I've actually asked to do. Uh, I'm not shy. It's like I love this track. I want to do a remix. Yeah, that's it. I, I want to do a remix. I feel it. I, I don't say to the artist, I can do it so much fucking better. But I, I, but I, I felt like I want to play this in my techno set, but it isn't strong enough for my techno set. So I want to do this and I feel it. And to their credit, that happens. And I got paid actually a good fee for doing it as well. Um, and I was really happy to, because I remember Leftfield from Outer Rhythm with their brilliant track, Not Forgotten. Mm -hmm. And I remember actually possibly uh, reviewing that for a couple of magazines, definitely one, and really, really being into it. So I knew who Leftfield were. But like uh, like it's pretty well known, I keep myself outside the music industry, so I don't hobnob with everyone. I'm not backstage with everyone. So I don't know people personally. So it's more like a mutual distance. And then I just wanted a remix. I thought, fuck. I want to do this. It's really fucking important. So I asked my manager to speak to them and they were like really open for the idea. Fantastic, man. I, that, I just, the, the impact, I, I think the impact you gave to that track and, and it, is, it is already like one of the biggest, like bassiest, hugest tracks. Uh, mm. Like I remember seeing Leftfield live in about 2000 and and like hearing that played live, they had a live drummer, and um, yeah, it was nuts. But yeah, you you that, more than they, did that justice, man. Seriously, they also <clears> invited <throat> me to play at one of their gigs. I think um, when they did a tour, I think it was either Manchester or Liverpool. I think it was Manchester. 
And they just treated me with so much respect, you know, from being picked up at the airport to everything was just done. And then I saw the show, I was like, fucking hell, I've got to come on after that. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, I can do this track so much better. Blah, 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 blah. And then I see them live, it's like, oh, I've got to come on after this, do I? Okay, that's going to be fun. Because <laughs> live, they were fantastic. I, I had the I had the joy of speaking to Fatboy Slim a few weeks ago, and he spoke about what you mentioned there, which was when you when you want to do when you when you're doing a remix for like somebody that you know or someone you respect, you want to make it better, like you want to improve on yeah. it. And uh, yeah, he he also talked about the frustration of it not working, um, and he gave an example of um, Star Guitar by the Chemical Brothers. He said he had to he he was given that to remix, and he had to just give it back to them and say. I can't, ma- I can't make that any better. <laughs> you have to be honest. And as you get older and as you get more experience within the industry, you don't even have to try sometimes. You just know that if something is perfect, and this happened to me, it's like, can you please do a remix? And you listen to it or you already know it and you go, well, it's already perfect. What can I add to it? There's no point doing anything to this. It actually already works. And I'm not really a person for the marketing thing. I'm for a person for like doing musical stuff and like if this track is already perfect why do anything to it that takes away from its perfection so you have to be honest about that as well and i think that gets easier as you have more experience within you know the the music industry you understand your own capabilities you understand and you can give compliments on someone else's amazing work and to say look honestly in my opinion um it certainly doesn't need another remix and it certainly doesn't need a remix from me because it's not going to add anything to it, and you have to be honest about that. Nice, man. Nice. And, um, yeah, you were talking about being sort of distancing yourself from the music, the the circles yeah. of, of music and the people and, and, yeah, the whole scene. And you have already yeah. spoken about that in other interviews, about um, sort of it being you have a more rounded and balanced I hope so. circle of friends and sort of um, environment because um yeah and you also talked about nepotism within the music industry as well yeah why do you think a lot of uh, sort of producers and and djs like want to hang out with each other i'm sure there's i'm sure there's a social element i'm sure especially if you've grown up together and you've you've changed the scene of your city or, or your region i'm sure you really want to hang out together and there's nothing wrong with that um i was always sort of uh apart from people, not because I'm better or worse or anything, just I felt more comfortable. I mean, Gary Newman has, has probably quite rightfully called me autistic to a degree. Um, so I'm sure my autism, I, I think I'm just tired of, of my autistic side being misconstrued and held against me. So I think I just withdrew naturally anyway, um, because it was just less hurtful and easier. And especially when people know that you have this slightly autistic uh, part of you, and then they use that to beat you down with it as well. Um, so I think I just pulled away quite naturally. And because I don't do drugs, uh, which not every fucking DJ does, but you know, a, a quite a large proportion of people within the music industry uh, sort of have or will or do have that sort of thing going on with them. And I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in getting drunk with people. And I, I do like to have a drink every now and then, 
And if I do like to have a drink every now and then, the majority of the time that I'll be on my own time with friends that have nothing to do with the music industry. Um, so I can just be relaxed and we're not talking about shop all the time or we're not talking about this person or that person all the time. And because normally it, it's, it's quite tiring to be in that environment. Uh, and then I get frustrated because I see how people talk in public about certain people in such a great way. And then when you hear them behind the scenes, how they slag off who they are, who their friends are, it's just like really tiring to be in that environment. It's like, well, why can't you just either be honest or shut the fuck up? It just doesn't translate. It's like, so obviously you'll just say nice things in public about people so you can get further on, but you don't have the backbone to say what you really think. And so I don't want to be in that environment. I just don't. Mm. Um, but, you know, I can be absolutely sure that some people uh, within the music industry that have changed their city together as a sound system, then of course that's a, that's a nice environment to be in. Yeah, um, I, I know I think it's really admirable that you do that and I think it can be quite a one-dimensional thing for people to just you know just to hang out with a certain type of of person um, and you also talked about being influenced by sort of punk and ska and like yeah. you know dub sort of sounds as well yeah keeping like a broad a broad palette in your mm. in your influences I mean Jesus I mean I, I think I did a party at the park in Hangleton where I was playing to a hip hop crowd and I was playing acid house, you know, <laughs> I was being canned off stage. And was that the disc, the roller disco? No, the roller disco was at King Alfred. Cause um, it said you got, King Al- you really, cause it said you got fired from the roller disco for playing acid yeah, house. I got fired from the roller disco for playing acid <laughs> house as well. Uh, because they do, they used to do also a game called British Bulldog. You probably remember. Oh, that I love that, is, that game. Right? Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. But that game's only supposed to last for two minutes because people get knackered, right? But I would make that game last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> and then people used to get really injured and taken off to hospital and stuff. So they didn't really appreciate that either. And then uh, when we were doing speed skating, I would play like uh, Acid Future House at 45 minus, minus 8, like really fast. And people like, again, we get fucked up and end up in hospital. <laughs> Um, so they, and then I took down a 2000 watt argon, um, which I hired from MBI, um, a strobe light and I had a smoke machine and people ended up taking their skates off and dancing. And then it was like, Dave, this really isn't working. We're going to have to say goodbye. And it was like, oh shit. Okay. Nice. I can't think of a, a better backdrop to a game of British Bulldog than Acid House. <laughs> Played really fast. <laughs> yeah. You, you released, um, World Service. Um, I haven't actually got the date of that. Where, where, was that late? Was that 98, 99? When was that released? World Service. I think that 2001. was 2001. I have got the date. Yeah, it's 2001. Yeah, and I know for a lot of people in the techno the techno world, um, it was um, just one of those timeless, timeless double mixes. I think it was released around now, actually. You just reminded me to do a Facebook 25. Uh, is it 20 years. Was 20 years, yeah, shit. 20 years, yeah. Man, I have to thank you so much. I mean, for for, for not only for all the music, but um, for my group of friends and for myself personally, World Service was just the most inspirational mix of ever, I think ever. Thank you. It, it really was. Um, it was, I was trying to think about this. It wasn't like a religious thing, but it was like a ritual to listen to the World Service. So there was two CDs, wasn't there? Was there was the techno mix and the electro yeah. mix? Um, yeah. How did that come together? How did that the, the, that mix come well, together? Well, at that time, 
Uh, React were a very, very famous uh, label um, for doing very many different things. And because I was sort of a troubadour, um, I wasn't generally invited into the auspices of such esteemed company um, to do stuff. Uh, my manager at that particular moment, Paul Benny, uh, was quite well connected and a good, a good communicator. And he spoke with, I think, James, and uh, I think they, they went for it. They weren't sure. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, we really believe in you. They weren't sure at the beginning. And it was like all a little bit like tentative and not sure. And then they fully committed. Um, then I came up with the idea of uh, having the magnetic cover uh, and stuff like that. Um, the artwork, I'm not sure if it was Tom Hingston. I'm not sure. But the artwork was really really clever Beautiful. for those times it was like using architectural lines and hiding my face behind it um and because i never from south side i never really felt comfortable about being on the front cover in in, in, a, in a way so that's why in south side you have the back of my head uh which james barton was like really funny he's like fucking hell you look like tyson with the back of your head it's like really funny <laughs> like there were like massive posters at the back of my head at victoria station so i was never really that comfortable about really having my face at the forefront uh, I think the saying is you have a face for radio. Um, so <laughs> so they, they had my face in there very, very behind, which I was really happy with. And I think they wanted more from me. And then we all came up with the idea of like doing a double CD because I can mix techno and electro together. Of course I can. I've been doing it for years. Um, but it just felt, felt more sense to do the two separately and did that and then it sold over 120,000 copies so you know but it wasn't easy to get there they weren't sort of like initially welcoming me like knocking on my doors like Dave we really want to do a compilation with you but then when I ended up working with them uh, I really enjoyed it there was uh, a one because in those days you had to get licenses and in the old-fashioned way so you'd, you'd have a proposed it's not like putting a mix together and shoving it on SoundCloud now you'd have to like um think about the tracks you're going to put together, right? And then you have track choice A, choice B, and choice C, right? And then you send off your choice A's, and then sometimes record labels are really quick, and you got that, it's like tick A, tick It took like two or three months to get the licensing together before you could put the mix together, right? Wow. It's, it's really different now. Mm. You have to think about these things in, in, in the time. So these are the tracks I already want, and luckily because I used to get music way in advance, the music that I got licenses for wasn't still sort of released or because tracks took three to four months to come out anyway. So we worked really, really hard. I was working with someone called France Dubois, Claude France Dubois, and she was like brilliant. So we'd constantly be emailing, emailing just sort of okay then and going backwards and forwards of a list. And then, right, we have a list. It's good to go. The mix, you can do this mix now, right? And that was like, great. Like, finally, you can do it after three months of... Uh, uh, Claude France Dubois working really hard getting the license clearings um, and then so you then have then you have to get the vinyl together put it together and then I did it in one go you have to do it in one go otherwise it's like what's the fucking point right there's, there's no fucking point it's like do it in one go no edits boom has to have the energy of a mix otherwise it's not a mix you know a lot of people put their shit together in Pro Tools back in those days or edited it no 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 you do it in one go one fucking go go for it and you know you sort of like 40 minutes through it's like better not fuck this up better not fuck this up and it keeps it going it keeps it going 
Um, so yeah, it was done in one go. Uh, both both mixes. Uh, it was I've amazing. I've been in the studio in Partridge Green with my top off. Uh, Partridge Green is just up the road from you. Um, if you go out the River Aid and follow it through, um, and and my dog would be looking at me funny. Uh, I'll be going fuck yeah, fuck yeah, whoa, boom, you know, and then it's done. And I used to, I think I wrote on there, takes as long to listen to as it did to make. Fucking brilliant. That's amazing, man. Uh, it is uh, just from the work, this from the moment the first beat drops on the techno uh, CD. There's that little beat juggly thing that you do. There's the two records at the same time, yeah. a little spin back, and then it just goes off. Um, yeah, absolutely amazing. So many belting tunes on there that were just. And, and the cool thing was, like, you could then say to uh, Claude Francois, was like, listen, I need two virgin copies of the vinyl. So you get them sent as well. That actually worked really well with Electro Boogie uh, because some of the tracks I only had on album, I didn't actually have on 12 inch. So, and, and actually some of them, they only had four or five left in their, in their archives. And I could actually get two virgin sealed copies of, of, that, of that record. And I, had, I couldn't afford it when I was younger. So I was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> um, so I, I just love shit like that. It just makes it, makes it fun. And then uh, World Service 2, I actually did on CDJs. Mm-hmm. Again, live in one go. Nice man, nice. And you, um, I guess, just talking about clearance, uh, you mentioned that really, yeah, that that clearance process. The one track yeah. that sort of stands out in in terms of getting it cleared, and just in terms of being really forward thinking and out there, is Idiotech on the electro yeah. mix. You, you can't imagine the dances that I did when I got the email back saying that they're given permission. Because I got it sent to me as a white label. And I, I mean, I've loved Radiohead for ages. I was actually, I was playing a festival, I think, with, um, in Belgium, maybe 95, 1996. And I was actually on stage right watching Radiohead play in Southwester, yellow um, um, weatherproofs um, because it was pissing down with rain with Alanis Morissette on my left. Wow. Um, watching them. So I was like a massive fan of, of Radiohead. And sometimes I still am, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean they're good or bad. I mean, you go in and out of people's musical careers and you follow it. Uh, and I still can't remember some of the tracks, even though I like them. It's a really interesting thing about Radiohead. But Idiotech, when it came out, it was like, wow. And when he, I got it on a 12 inch and it was like so well pressed that I used to play it in my sets. And it was like, I need to have this on here because it really... Because obviously with the Saga radio show, I think people understand my musical um, things are, are really, really wide. I could easily do a set on, on radio about 80s um, uh, funk or 80s hip-hop or 90s hip-hop. I can do that, but that's too easy. Or 80s house. I could do that, but it's too easy. I want to do large type of music. So with Radiohead having Idiotech on there, it sort of, sort of gave a little tick to my inner, I like music from different genres as well. And I, I can incorporate it and I will. It was the same with uh, Richio Sakamoto uh, with End of Europe and stuff like that. I could, I could bring that in there without it being strange to me, but other people going, How, what, huh? what's that about? And for me, it was just a natural thing to do. And I was like doing lots of things like this at the Arches in, in Glasgow where I'd be booked to do two sets and the second set, I'll play electro in a much, much smaller room. And um, I would just go really like this all over the place. And having Idiotech licensed was, and also Underground Resistance as well, because obviously 
You know, they don't license at that time to anyone. Radiohead didn't license to anyone. And to have Underground Resistance and that, it just, to me, it made perfect sense. And I felt really privileged. I spoke to Aid Fenton, episode nine of this podcast, and he he talked about doing the the tour for that the the tour for World Service. Um, yeah, when did yeah. you meet Aid? When when did you get to know Aid? I think Aid has a better memory of that than me, which is really weird because I have like a really strong memory. Um, it probably would have been Birmingham, I'm sure. Probably would have been Atomic Jam, but. Yeah, I actually, until I heard of the podcast before, you know, because I did a little bit of research before uh, we were doing this, before I actually forgot that I did a World Service tour and that Abe was on it, uh, which really flummoxed me because I was like, wow, I have a really good memory, except I don't. Um, and I, I didn't remember that, and then I remembered it. Um, so I think I met Aid um, in Birmingham, I think. Um, I think uh, I do remember being in his car once, and I think he had like about four or five of my mixes on cassette. Uh, it was like you could see that he was like really into to what I was doing. Yeah, he's a great guy, Aid. He's he's really cool. And um, I I know of Aid through those nights at the Q Club, the Atomic Jam. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're just tremendous. And I remember, I do remember seeing you there in the main room. I've still got the ticket stub. Uh, somewhere <laughs> from that night um yeah i don't think i've ever seen so much energy in a room um and it was all emanating from you and what you were doing you know you were physically putting your energy into that dj set you know a lot of some djs are very sort of uh stagnant in the way that they're performing um but yeah it was so high energy it was a special room and I said, I used to say to Aid, I bet that's not the first time you've had a massive organ behind you, boom, because it was a massive like, organ. <laughs> um, but it was a very, a very special room, um, really, because I mean, I played in, in in Birmingham, obviously for House of God, yep, and that had its own energy, and then Atomic Jam had its own energy, and actually the two energies were very different but very similar. It's really hard to explain. Uh, and Atomic Jam, I mean, that that whole venue was like a Roman Colosseum, uh, you know, where people would see people fight to the death. It felt like a real, really intense environment. It felt incredible to be there and and to play there. I can never fucking find the place, though, uh, because it was the days before GPS and every fucking road in Birmingham is called Queensway. I could never find the fucking place. Uh, and then I'd always find it by accident because I'd always see the fire, the fire station. I think, oh, I'm close, I'm close. And then I'd, then I'd end up in the jewellery quarter or somewhere because I'd be on the fucking ring road or something. <laughs> it was impossible to find for ages. I just couldn't find the fucking place. It was, you have to remember before GPS is take a left, take a right. It was like, look at a fucking map, take it into your mind and drive that. Never found it. It was always painful. I know what you mean, man. I even lived in Birmingham myself, and I remember being in in the city centre and going, oh, shit, we're by the Q Club. 
like not even realizing yeah, exactly. like, where the fuck it was it was just in some exactly did i even just imagine this place but yeah it was like a labyrinth wasn't it there's was just corridors yeah. and and the rooms were all like there was the big main room but then there was other rooms and you could spend yeah. 45 minutes trying to find the breaks room or you know find the third room because it's just there's carnage everywhere there's people like you say people fighting to the death people sort of half dead on the on the floor it was amazing <laughs> uh, it was a really um special with jez and danny i mean there's i don't know and sometimes i used to sit in the you know when you used to go in there used to be the box where people used to pay for their tickets or show their tickets and sometimes i used to get there early when i had found the place right <laughs> and i sit in the front because there was there wasn't really a backstage at atomic jam so i just sit in 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 the in the booth the ticket booth at the front and I would just for fun pretend I was working there. And I'd take the tickets of people and they go, do you know when Dave's on? I was like, no, sorry, mate. <laughs> and they didn't know it was me. And I, I love that. I always found that really, really funny. Uh, and I used to do that in a club in, in Munich and uh, called Ultra Show when it was at the airport. And I used to stand on the door. And uh, yeah, when, what, what time is uh, Dave playing? I was like, don't know. things you do in the old days maybe if they they, take it off maybe if they saw the back of your head they'd recognize you ah there you go i didn't (laughs) think about that um but yeah that was funny i used to sit there and just take tickets of people and that that was hilarious that's brilliant man that's brilliant um yeah and you released um devil's advocate um your second album 2003 yeah. Yeah. Again, another belter. That was on uh, Brighton Skint label, wasn't it? Yeah. So um, I managed to find my freedom from Bush, and because for ages I've been doing loads of remixes um, to get an artistic output uh, for making music because I was effectively on strike, and then I managed to uh, get freedom from Bush, and then cut a long story short, uh, a few labels were interested, but I, I signed to Skint. Um, because it made sense, because obviously uh, Damien used to work in Rounder Records um, in Brighton. I don't know how long you've been there, but I think Rounder Records left about seven years ago um, in, in in the lanes. Um, and he used to work there, and so did uh, other people. I knew them from the Brighton scene, even though it wasn't part of the Brighton scene in many ways. And it felt right to sign to Skin being a Brighton label, because they were interested that uh, they were approachable, uh, they were passionate. Again, it was a label that had insane commerciality with with obviously Fatboy Slim. But at the same time, I did my Midfield General remix and that went down really, really well. Um, so they, I felt like it was a good place to go. So we actually had a, um, a signing. I went, they said, where do you want to do the signing party? I went, I need to do it at the Greyhound uh, course. So we went to the Greyhound course, which I hadn't been to since I was a kid, right? We did the signing party there and I haven't been to the Greyhound. I mean, I'm not into to Greyhound racing at all. I'm not into betting at all, but we did the signing party there. And actually that was fun. Uh, I, I, I wanted it to be really Brighton, you know, like a real bright experience, like signing the record deal at the Greyhound course. It, for me, it made sense. And so we did that and that was fun. I even did a little, like a little party at Horatio's on the Palace Pier. Uh, with them as well, and I was DJing, I think, and I actually did a little stint on Palace Beer Radio for fun uh, when I was when I was younger. Um, so that that was funny too. 
Um, so yeah, actually being with a brand label made sense because I was just at the road in Partridge Green and um, having meetings with people was quite easy. You know, I mean, having meetings with James Barton was always really, really easy, but other record labels that we were talking to, you need to prepare, you need to do this, you need to go there, then you need to go to London. I'd, I thought, I don't need to go to London. Skin will believe in me, and they did. They accounted to me, everything was fine. And so I was really happy to be with Skin. And, you know, JC was also very passionate. He would come to my house, we'd talk about stuff. And then, unfortunately, I was going through a very difficult uh, personal thing at the time where I was going through divorce, and, you know, Skint were with me, but they had to push me to work because I wasn't feeling like working. Um, so they pushed me to do things, what was called works in progress. So I had to re report to them, not like every week, but I had to show them what I was doing, which sort of gave me the structure to be in the studio. And then I was all alone on my birthday and uh, I then came up with the, the background track for uh, She's in Parties, uh, what was the name? On that, and actually, ironically, that track was originally going to be for um, Tiger uh, for him to do vocals. Oh wow! Because his birthday is around the same time. I thought it'd be a fun thing to do, but it didn't work out. And then I changed everything, moved everything around, and then worked with Chips on Speed, and then it really, really worked out. Um, but I, I was basically all alone, feeling really fucking sad, and I thought I'm going to do a really good track, try my best, and that's how that came out. Nice man, nice. I love that album. Um, really, it was probably the first actual techno album that I bought. I think was was that Devil's Advocate. Okay. Um, yeah, loved it, and it's been great to sort of go back to it and listen back to it, and um, yeah, really like slams from from the first track onwards. Um, amazing work, and yeah, hopefully I'm going to speak to Damien in a few weeks. Who, who he was, Midfield General, who you did the remix of Coat Noise that you mentioned earlier on, yeah. which again is uh, I, I I meant to bring it up when we were talking about World Service, but um, just one of the most standout tracks on that mix. Just absolutely slamming. Can can you remember? I mean, this is like really nerdy and possibly you know fairly pointless. But do you remember how you like processed the 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 synth on that track? Because when it hits in, it's so vibey. Well, that's the whole point. It's when the beat hits. Yeah. Beat. Um, hell that kills. It's, I've always multi-layered everything from bass drums to synths. Layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, timing the layers so that they make sense with phase and frequency. Um, a lot of the sounds I think came from the JV twenty eighty actually. Because mm, there's like a sizzle. There's like a sizzle to that. That's um, fuck. Definitely wasn't plugins. Um, uh, at that time, everything was going through um, a Yamaha O two R desk. Oh, um, nice! I know that desk. And then coming out through. Uh, so, like, all, all the effects I'll be using will be through the Eventide Orville or the Lexicon 960L or the Lexicon 91 or the 81. And all the processing at that time was coming through Focusrite uh, Blue uh, Compressor. Nice, man. Yeah, you've talked about your love. You said you've, uh, you, you're inspired by dynamics. I quite like that idea. You said that in an interview. Um, and yeah, big fan of, of, of compression. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. Um, I mean, there are other interviews with you where you've detailed your setup and your processing. So, um, there's pr probably not much 
not much need to go in in that direction. However, I do love all that stuff as well. Um, yeah, there's even an interview with you where the guy's basically asking you about your computer for half an hour, which, which I thought... Yeah, I've just installed a 16 terabyte PCIe card um, uh, for hard drive and it actually gobbles up like a gigabyte in a second. You can throw like a gigabyte file up, done. Wow. It's like, thank you. This is exactly what I've needed for ages. Yeah. It's like, done done like okay time machine done okay brilliant you don't have to wait for that bottleneck anymore and having capacity inside the machine is amazing um but it was a bit of an arse ache because you have to do loads of weird things with the permissions with the t2 chip but actually they've just released uh, a new version of the uh, proprietary software which actually does away with all of that so that's quite interesting too Nice. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems in, even in the future music, uh, you're, you're breaking down a track in future music um, and and you have a monitor of the eight cores on your PC as well, which, uh, you know, you, I've got 56 now. 56 cores. Nice, man. That's that's pretty good. That's that's a pretty decent amount. Um, oh, yeah. Did you know um, very recently there's a company that are talking about using GPUs to do audio processing? Have you heard about that? They use it for, for actually mining for bloody Bitcoin, don't they? Uh, they? They used to be like a little hack you could actually do to use the VRAM um, like about 10 years ago off, off your GPU uh, for audio. Mm. But I don't need to hijack any GPUs for my... With 56 uh, cores. <laughs> it's fine. But apparently... I yeah. mean, I'm, running a, I'm running a 6K monitor right now um, on, on the GPU and I'm going to get another sort of like 4K to, to have at least two... Um, so I'd rather leave my GPU to handle my GPU. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is quite a weird um, uh, thing to sort of explain to people that you're using a GPU for audio processing, but it does make sense. Um, uh, and yeah, I think Abbey Road are involved with it. Like, it isn't just like a flash in the pan thing. It's like a thing that um, I can send you a link to it anyway. It's just you might be interested. I well, know maybe it'll replace the shark processors that uh, UAD have been using for 372 years. <laughs> um, and maybe we'll actually get past the, the shark and actually get to like, yeah. But, you know, computers now are really very, very powerful. Uh, I'm still running a 44.1, although 24-bit. I did want to go to 96 and maybe 192. But you do take a hit on the amount of plugins you can use, obviously, because each plugin requires two to four times as much processing. So you, you lose that. Um, hmm. And 44.1 is actually okay. 48 is okay. 24-bit uh, is perfect. So I'm not, and when the new M2 chip comes for the, the new Mac Pro or M3, um, I can't imagine anyone thinking, you know what? I need some more processing. It's not going to happen. I mean, we're getting to that point where, you know, unless you're shifting 8K video around. Um, 360 video. Yeah, it's not it's not that necessary with audio now. We've reached the the point where audio we just need better GUIs um, and a more realistic um, processing. But the computers we have now are easily powerful enough. Easily. Yeah, and what do you what do you produce in? What do you use to make music? I use uh, Logic, uh, which I really really adore. I think it's fantastic. And I use uh, uh, WaveLab Stein uh, Steinberg WaveLab for mastering, nice. uh, finishing off the the two track, and I use that. But uh, Logic is absolutely uh, it's so clean, so clear, so easy, and wonderful to use. 
Excellent. Yeah, you also talked about the love of, of uh, digital EQs uh, in comparison to... Yeah, to digital the EQs are, are like... Uh, I think digital compression is still an effect. It's not a reality, although some some do it really well, like even Ty's Omnipressor. Um, some of the Chandler stuff is, is quite cool. Um, but I honestly think sometimes they trade much more on the emotion of like, look, mummy, I've got a Shadow Hills compressor. No, you don't. You have like a GUI that looks like a Shadow Hills compressor. Might sound a little bit similar, but it's still the GUI that makes you think you have a Shadow Hills compressor. And to stick it into Coco, put another one into Coco, and then see which one you can tell is which. And then you might not go, oh, I'm working on the Shadow Hills. It's not. Um, but when it comes to EQ and when it comes to uh, effects, I'm really a big fan of In The Box. Um, I used to have a Brightcast D and uh, I have uh, a, a digital In The Box version of that. And it's fantastic because it's so, so uh, mediable. You can do so much to it with automation now, which you could never dream about. And the EQs, yeah, I mean, EQ inside the box. I do have a, a um, an analog EQ when it goes to two-track, but EQ inside the box, it works well for me. I don't see any need for anything else. Um, uh, I think the characteristics of EQ are a lot easier than the characteristics of, of compression for uh, having it as a plugin. Do you mind talking about John Peel for a second? No, sure. Yeah, because um, obviously I know he gave you your the moniker that everyone, I assume, yeah. refers to you with. Um, an amazing, an amazing man. Uh, he did list your album in the top twenty of all time. Oh wow! As well, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, I haven't written down which I, one it is, but um, yeah. Do you? I didn't know, didn't know that at all. Hmm. What was it like? Because you did a few live sessions for him, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, John, I, every time I did an interview, I'll always start off with, without John, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. You wouldn't even know who the fuck I am. It's that simple. Um, so John really gave me the keys to my car to, to drive my career because, you know, I wasn't getting support. I had support from Colin Dale. I had support from Colin Favour. Uh, but when it came to being on on the nation's radio, uh, there wasn't any support until John came along. And then after John came along, of course, everyone sort of like wants to flow on John's coattails a little bit. And so then you get the sort of the John bump, you know, when other DJs that are sort of cool in the station would pick up on it because John had. But John, yeah, he he really was very very supportive. I got like my first big royalty check because of John, because uh, PRS uh, kept denying that my tracks had been played on Radio 1. And then because Alison Howe, his then producer, then sent me an inject uh, print-off of the tracks that had been played that I then sent to PRS, and lo and behold, instantly I got like an £880 royalty check, uh, which in those days was a lot of money. In fact, in these days when no one's earning any money, it's still a lot of money. And I got a 880 or 800, at least 800 pound royalty check. Um, and then they kept an eye on it closer and I kept getting royalty checks from John playing it. And I just reinvested that money straight back into the studio and kept buying stuff. Um, so at many different levels, John helped my career go further forward by bringing people's attention to me. But also by every time you played a record on Radio 1, you got like 80 pounds. 
and you know play my record 10 times in like a, a quarter and it's like wow 800 fucking pounds you know and that's a synthesizer or that's that's a mixing desk or you know that's something significant where i can build my my career from the other angle and so i kept investing it back in there and yeah and then i played um, a few uh, live things for him as well and of course dj for him and uh, he yeah, I mean, he was also working directly with someone called Scott Peering, who also sadly passed away. And um, these people were really the old guard, but the old guard of, of, of passion, not the old guard of power, but the old guard of passion where, you know, they played music because they loved it. They didn't play it because some hipster plugger had come up to them saying, look, if you play this, you're going to get loads of extra plays on, on uh, loads of extra people listening to your radio show and you're going to build the numbers up this way, I can assure you. And then talking about the figures two or three weeks later, well, that track didn't go down so well. So that plugger's, no, they would, if you put a Kit Kat in, in the post with your record joke, uh, they would play your record, you know, because they, and they did. And um, yeah, it's, it's and I, I, I like to naturally not, chosen but I, I naturally follow that course of you go out and you find music to play on the radio you go out and you listen to music to play on the radio you play the music because you like it because you love it because you feel something for it not because a hipster plugger will come in there and say this is what you should be playing because you're so far away from what actually is really happening with music not going on radio reading out a press release about the music just letting the music talk for itself and, and John was great. And, and I learned a lot from John uh, without realizing, of course, you know, like listening to him on the radio late at night. And there was a north-south divide, which you've successfully bridged. Well done. But there was a north-south divide where, you know, we would listen to the music in the south without realizing it was the music from the south. And if anyone went way in, in any of their lyrics, like, oh, fucking, that's a bit ferret. That's a bit northern. Not going to go for that. That's a bit scary because it was different in those days. And then with John, you'd hear northern groups and you'd go, oh, I, I can relate to that. I understand that this is good. And then, you know, because I, I have a saying, it's like new order is like pet shop boys for Northern people. Pet shop boys is like new order for Southern people. That's what, <laughs> that's what it always felt like. And, and John didn't care about any of that shit. He'd be like gawky, psychotic monkey, the fool, um, the passion. Happy hardcore. Yeah. The passions and, 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 and then music. And so he just did it for the music. And, when you listen to that uh, as a consumer on radio and you see his uncomfortable presence on top of the pops and enjoy that, that he's shifting around because he knows that this is a shit environment and, uh, and, and, you, and you know that he's sort of snidely taking the piss but no one realises it perhaps fully enough. And, and, you, and you love that. I mean, I remember when he was on daytime radio and he was just basically breaking the rules of daytime radio. You can just imagine that the radio... Um, head of Radio Arms, probably. Oh God, no! This is a really bad decision, and and just I just love that anti-authoritative, but with 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 good meaning, not anti-authoritative just to be reactionary, like childish, but anti-authority just because authority is wrong, and there is passion, and there's great music that should be, and he always supported the underdog, always supported the underdog. So many people's careers had careers because of John Peel. And the world is still a richer place in the English music scene because of John. I, I don't see any heir apparent to John in two ways. I don't see any heir apparent physically being there, 
And also, I don't see any possibility of uh, that even being given space anymore. I mean, BBC Radio 6, I really enjoy listening to it. But by fuck, it hurts me when they play dance music during the day. It's just, it's wrong. It doesn't fit. It's it's really, it's but it's still the best radio station that I know that I listen to in the world. But, mm-hmm. you know, and John Peel being on that would have been perfect. But there isn't any John Peel anymore. So. Yeah, such a sad day when he passed. I, I remember that so well. Well, the thing that was really upsetting for me as well is that John had come down to see me when I was playing, I think, for Marianne Hobbs at um, uh, at the Concord 2 uh, for a radio thing, came down with uh, his, his wife as well, and they were talking to me backstage. Um, I, I just started divorce and everything, and, and we were talking. And then uh, <laughs> he went on holiday. Um, he wasn't sure about going on holiday, um, and he went on holiday and it was actually after, of course he deserves a holiday and there's no blame here, but you know, my ex-wife apparently uh, told him that, yeah, you should go on holiday. And then he fucking dies when he's on holiday and it's really sad. I was actually offered John Peel's job at Radio One. Really? Um, by a producer called Wendy Pilmer. Fuck. Uh, I'm gonna be writing a book at some point, so a lot of this stuff will come out. Um, and it was more than just a passing comment. It was not like, what would you think? It's like, you know, this is a possibility because at the time John was um, doing very, very late slots, getting on in life and, you know, staying in shit hotels to do, to do these slots. Um, but he was carrying on because of his passion. Of course, that later on they allowed him to record his, his, uh, his radio show at his house, which I've never been to. Um, but, you know, he, there was sort of like, and I, there's no way that I could, I, I said instantly, no, I can't do this. Whether it would have happened or not, I don't know, but there's no way that I could have ever considered doing this because, I mean, John is, John is the, the most important thing in my life musically, actually. I can completely understand that, yeah. Um, I guess his son, like Tom Ravenscroft, carries carries on a large percentage of what he does on Six Music. Um, you do hear sort of thraping techno on a Friday night coming out of the, the radio. Sometimes I've heard, um, when I was on tour, uh, I would always listen to Radio 6 when I was on tour, which is now pretty much impossible because unless you use the BBC Radio 6 app, uh, you can't listen to radio, and it's the Radio 6 app is horrible. But before I was, I was on tour, I'd listen, and sometimes I would like fall asleep and I'd be waking up listening, oh, well, that's a pretty solid track that Tom's playing. Mm. And he would play some, but I mean, what what a pair of shoulders! I think Tom obviously would want to have his own sonic signature of what he's doing, uh, which is probably why his last name is, you know, not utilizing Peel, for example. Definitely, um, I think it's best to sort of consider Tom to be a separate entity rather than following in his father's footsteps. I think absolutely that does both people sort of a disservice. Definitely. Um, it is worth mentioning that your sets that you did for for John, they're still li- they're listed on some websites. I found like there's loads of wow. track listings, so you can go back through. and And I had a field day looking back through those old sets and recognizing yeah. some of the tracks. And um, uh, yeah, uh, what an amazing an amazing legacy that guy had. Um, yeah. You've talked about writing a book. Are you, uh, how is that going? What, what's the plan with, with the book? I haven't started yet. My idea is to finish off the music that I'm, musical project I'm doing at the moment. 
um, to then um, do some photography, more photography. Hopefully, if I'm allowed to travel, if I get the vaccine and everything starts opening up again, let's see. Um, and then when I've done that particular project, because I don't believe there's going to be much DJ work to be had this year, I think I'll be uh, writing a book for the end of this year. And maybe it works out. Maybe I'll sit down there in the kitchen and after the first 10 pages, go, fuck this for a game of solidism. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but that's that's the plan at the very, very least. And I'm sort of trying to get more into practice with this by uh, doing some journalism, getting my written words out once again um, to see how that works for me, um, to see if I repeat similar phrases, to see if I can actually write in, a, in an interesting way. And if I can do that, then I'm going to write a book this year. Yeah. Fantastic, man. I can't wait for that. Um, and uh, you said you're doing some bits for Sound on Sound. What do you do for Sound on Sound? Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm just doing a small series for Sound on Sound. Uh, I've just interviewed John Fox. Nice. And uh, interviewing some other people that I respect. So I have a carte blanche from Sound and Sound. So we'll see how that goes. But yeah. Really amazing to hear your stories. And yeah, I just want to thank you for all the music you've done and your, your ethos, your honesty. Um, yeah, your, your sort of non conformist way of being. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Dave. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Wow, uh, that's Dave Clark. What an amazing guy. Um, he is one of the most incredible live DJs I've ever seen. And um, it was incredible to actually speak to that guy who I saw in clubs uh, years and years ago in Birmingham. Uh, really, really nice guy. He made me laugh a lot. Um, he's, he's clearly very strongly principled, and uh, he, but he's very honest, very open and upfront. I really admire the way he conducts himself and his dedication to the underground scene I think is probably second to none. Uh, he's an amazing guy, I love his stuff. Uh, do go and check it out if you're not familiar with any of it. Right, on the show next time we've got another huge star. Uh, we've got an American, uh, he's a boy from Michigan, which is a little hint to uh, who we're going to have on. Uh, another one of my absolute heroes, another absolute pleasure. And um, yes, we'll rendezvous in two weeks for that episode. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Nidiera and I will see you again soon.